Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of Hanukkah, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. Now, I'm addressing this subject, the subject of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, from a historical point of view, not just from the point of view of the events that took place and the decisions that people made, but I'm also explaining some of the interventions that we experienced, that we have records of concerning our God, that our God did intervene on a number of occasions. And I believe that it's very important for us to know about these events, about these times when our God did respond. He did involve himself. He did participate in the things that were taking place. And I believe that this is a wonderful opportunity for us to look at these things and be reminded that our God is actively participating in our lives. Now, in the previous program, I focused on the Treaty of Apamea, which was made in 188 B.C. between the Greek and Roman Empire. Antiochus III established this treaty with the Romans, and then he passed away a year later. His son, Seleucus IV, took power, and then he enforced the treaty, which primarily had to do with acquiring 15,000 talents of gold and providing that for the Roman Empire. His father provided an initial 3,000 talents of gold, and then Seleucus IV had to provide an additional 1,000 talents per year to the Roman Empire. Now, I was explaining in the previous program that this would require a significant amount of work Work in the sense that the people had to do this work and then the government could tax them directly or indirectly or perhaps they would be able to borrow the gold from the people, although I don't have any records that indicate that Seleucus borrowed any of the gold from the people. He could take it indirectly through inflation or he could take it through war. Now, there was a surplus. There was a surplus that he had. He was able to make his payments to Rome And he did have a surplus, and he did use the surplus. And one of the things that he used the surplus for was to pay for all of the sacrifices that were taking place in the temple in Jerusalem. Seleucus provided all of the gold that was necessary in order to obtain all of the sacrifices that were necessary in order to maintain the operations in the temple in Jerusalem. And so he did have a good relationship between himself, between the Assyrians, and the Jews at that time. There was a reasonably good relationship. Now, the high priest of the temple at this time was a very, very popular man. His name was Onias. The high priest in Jerusalem at this time was Onias, and he was recognized 
as a righteous man. He was recognized as a man of integrity, of honor, that he was a servant of the living God. This was the high priest Onias, and he was the recipient of these funds from Seleucus IV, and he did use those funds in order to obtain the animals and provide the sacrifices there in the temple. But because of the righteousness of Onias and the popularity of Onias, he not only received contributions from the local people to help with the things of the temple, but he also received significant contributions from other kings of other nations who would often travel and visit the temple. They would make major contributions to the temple to show their appreciation for what was taking place and to express their recognition for the integrity of the high priest Onias. Now, of course, not everyone in Jerusalem had that kind of reputation. There was a governor of Jerusalem at that time. His name was Simon, who was of the tribe of Benjamin. And Simon was not a good governor. There was a lot of corruption there in the government of Jerusalem. And Onias confronted Simon, the governor of Jerusalem, and using his influence, he eventually had Simon removed from his position as governor in Jerusalem because of the corruption and the dishonesty and the lack of integrity and all of the problems that the people were experiencing because of that. And so Onias was a very popular person. He was a person of great influence to the extent where he was able to have the governor of Jerusalem removed from office and replaced. Now, of course, Simon didn't take this very well. He was very upset about this. We know that he traveled north. He went up to the north to visit a person by the name of Apollonius, who was a governor in the Seleucia region just to the north. He went up to speak with Apollonius, and what he did was he told Apollonius that Onias was not necessarily as honest as perhaps as Seleucus IV thought he was, because Onias did not need the gold that was being given to him by Seleucus IV for the temple sacrifices. He didn't need that because the temple had a tremendous amount of gold and silver. It was reported that Onias had about 200 talents of gold there in the temple and about 400 talents of silver. And if you use a gold to silver ratio of 12 to 1, 12 talents of silver was the equivalent of one talent of gold in terms of purchasing power. If you use that ratio, then you can determine the value of the silver as well and why it would be reported. This was reported to the governor of the Celosyria region of Polyanus to report this to Seleucus IV, because, of course, Simon didn't have the reputation anymore or the access to Seleucus because he no longer had a position. He went to Governor Apollonius, who then took that information to Seleucus IV and told Seleucus, listen, Onias doesn't need the government's money. He's got lots of gold. He's got all this gold. We know this is the amount that he has. Seleucus was not very happy to hear about that. 
He was not excited. Now, he has an obligation to come up with a certain amount of gold every year. He was obligated to come up with 1,000 talents of gold every year. This put some pressure on Seleucus to come up with this. And he was giving gold to the temple in Jerusalem, and the temple in Jerusalem didn't need it. And so it makes perfect sense to consider the fact that he should stop giving the gold to the temple in Jerusalem. He should stop doing that because they don't need it. And in addition to that, because Onias never notified him of this fact, Seleucus can easily take the position that the temple treasury in Jerusalem now owes him. The temple treasury in Jerusalem now owes him. They are indebted to him because they received gold that they did not have a need for from him. This could easily be a perspective of Seleucus that might motivate him to go and collect. Collect not only the gold that he gave to the temple, but also collect all of it. Just simply take the entire treasury. Not just because perhaps he might take the position that the treasury owes him that money anyway, but he can also take the position that he is the ruling authority over the region to include the temple and that he has the right to do so. He has a need for it, and so he's going to go and just simply take the gold. So the decision was made by Seleucus to not only stop sending gold to the temple, but to also send his treasurer over to the temple in Jerusalem to collect all of the gold and the silver that was there in the treasury. And so he sends his treasurer, and his treasurer's name was Heliodorus. And of course, I'm not very good at pronouncing names in Greek, and so I have to ask you to be patient with me concerning these names that I'm attempting to pronounce. He sends his treasurer, Heliodorus, to go to the temple in Jerusalem and take the gold. Now, he doesn't make this public. He sends Heliodorus down there privately. It is suggested that Heliodorus is just simply going to travel around the empire a little bit, take a look at things, and not necessarily have a specific mission. But when he arrives at the temple... Then he confronts Onias with these issues and notifies Onias that he and his troops are there for the purpose of taking the gold out of the temple treasury. Now, Onias did make a strong appeal to Heliodorus not to take the gold, not only because the contributions were holy, but also because many of the contributions were made by kings of other nations, and this simply wouldn't look good for them to discover that the king, Seleucus, sent his treasurer to confiscate the contributions that these other kings made to the temple. This is not a good idea. So he made a sincere appeal to Heliodorus, but Heliodorus is there under the direction of Seleucus IV, the king. He is not the one who can make the decision not to take the gold. That decision is Seleucus's decision, not Heliodorus's. Heliodorus cannot return to the king without the gold. Otherwise, the king might assume that he is unfit for the position. He might assume that Heliodorus took the gold himself and is hiding it. 
There are many things that Seleucus might assume if Heliodorus does not return with the gold, but one thing is for certain, and that is that he will have disobeyed the command of the king, and his life would quite likely be in jeopardy. Seleucus might execute him if he returns without the gold. And so even if Onias makes the greatest appeal possible, and Heliodorus might want to respond to that appeal and not take the gold, even though it might be his desire, he still would have to face the king and he would be putting his own life in jeopardy. Now, after this discussion took place, and of course we don't know how long this discussion took place, but after this discussion took place, Heliodorus made the decision to go ahead and go into the temple treasury with his troops and take the gold, take the gold and silver. He made the decision to do that, but when he approached the treasury, when he approached the treasury, the living God intervened at this time. Now, we don't know what the criteria was that God established or what he responded to or what made him make the decision to intervene personally at this time. We don't have that information, but God decided to do that. He sent a few angels to intervene and to stop Heliodorus and his troops from taking the gold that was in the temple treasury at this time. Now, of course, I will explain a little bit later that the Lord did not intervene at another time. The gold was taken from the treasury. The Lord did not intervene. And so that's what I mean by the criteria. I mean, if the criteria was established by God, there must be some uniqueness to it to the extent where God decided to intervene now, but he didn't intervene later. We don't have that much information, but what I do know is that our God can be trusted concerning when he is going to intervene and when he is not going to intervene. But I believe that at this time he made a decision. He sent angels. We have a record of this found in the book Second Maccabees, beginning in chapter 3, and not very many people have a copy of this, and so I'm going to read this. I'm going to read the account of the living God intervening and a miracle unfolds. This is something that our God did. And we have the testimony of this event. And it certainly might not be as profound as the parting of the Red Sea, but it's profound in the sense that regardless of how small or great it is, what's important to see is that our God is alive. He is living. He is participating And at this time, he revealed himself, he showed himself, he intervened in this situation. Beginning in 2 Maccabees chapter 3, verse 23, this is in Old English, it says, Nevertheless, Heliodorus executed that which was decreed. Now, as he was there, present himself with his guard about the treasury, the Lord of spirits and the prince of all power caused a great apparition so that all that presumed to come in with him were astonished at the power of God, and fainted, and were sore afraid. For there appeared unto them an horse with a terrible rider upon him, and adorned with a very fair covering, and he ran fiercely, and smote at Heliodorus with his forefeet, and it seemed that he that sat upon the horse had complete harness of gold. Moreover, two other young men appeared before him, notable in strength, 
excellent in beauty and comely in apparel, who stood by him on either side, and scourged him continually, and gave him many sore stripes. And Heliodorus fell suddenly unto the ground, and was compassed with great darkness. But they that were with him took him up and put him into a litter. Thus him and lately came with a great train, and with all his guard into the said treasury they carried out, being unable to help himself with his weapons, and manifestly they acknowledged the power of God. For he by the hand of God was cast down and lay speechless without all hope of life. But they praised the Lord that had miraculously honored his own place, for the temple, which a little afore was full of fear and trouble, when the Almighty Lord appeared, was filled with joy and gladness. Then straightways certain of Heliodorus's friends prayed Onias that he would call upon the Most High to grant him his life, who lay ready to give up the ghost. So the high priest, suspecting lest the king should misconceive that some treachery had been done to Heliodorus by the Jews, offered a sacrifice for the health of the man. Now as the high priest was making an atonement, the same young men in the same clothing appeared and stood beside Heliodorus, saying, Give Onias the high priest great thanks, insomuch as for his sake the Lord hath granted thee life. And seeing that thou hast been scourged from heaven, declare unto all men the mighty power of God. And when they had spoken these words, they appeared no more. So Heliodorus, after he had offered sacrifice unto the Lord, and made great vows unto him that had saved his life, and saluted Onias, returned with his host to the king. Then testified he to all men the works of the great God which he had seen with his eyes. And when the king Heliodorus, who might be a fit man to be sent yet once again to Jerusalem, he said, If thou hast any enemy or traitor, send him thither, and thou shalt receive him well scourged, if he escape with his life, for in that place, no doubt, there is an especial power of God. This is the testimony of Heliodorus, the treasurer of Seleucus IV, who went to the temple to take the gold from the temple, and the Lord personally intervened. And there was no question in his mind that the living God had intervened. The Lord spared his life after quite a beating, and then Heliodorus returned back to the king. Now, what is he going to do when he gets back home? What's he going to do? How is he going to explain this to Seleucus IV? What kind of an explanation is he going to give? How much testimony is he going to need? How many witnesses will he require to bring his case before Seleucus and explain to Seleucus that the living God intervened and prevented him from getting the gold and executing that which Seleucus had decreed. What's he really going to say? Well, we don't have any record concerning what he might have said, but what we do know is that when he did return, he assassinated Seleucus. That's what he did. He murdered him. 
Now, I don't know if he tried to bring his case before him first, and then Seleucus rejected his testimony and then told him that he was in a lot of trouble, and then he assassinated Seleucus, or if he just went and assassinated him anyway without giving him any warning. We don't have that much information, or at least I don't have that information at my disposal. And so I'm just simply going to say that Heliodorus returned home, he assassinated Seleucus, and he took power. He took power there in the kingdom and established himself as the ruler of the empire at this time. Now, I don't know the details concerning him taking power, because normally you would expect that Seleucus IV would have a son and that his son would then assume power. But his son, Demetrius, his son's name was Demetrius, he was doing his three years in Rome at this time. And so he wasn't able to take the position. So Heliodorus took the position, but he didn't hold this position for very long because Seleucus' brother, Antiochus IV, was back from spending his three years in Rome. He was there. And so he decided to take action himself and try to recover the throne from Heliodorus, recover power from Heliodorus so that it would stay In the family, Antiochus IV decided to get some help. He went to the king of Pergamon, whose name was Eumenes II. He got help from that king. And with the power, the military, that Eumenes had, Antiochus IV was able to go to the seat of power in the kingdom and take authority away from Heliodorus and establish himself as the king of of the Seleucid Empire. That's how Antiochus IV became the ruler of the empire, and this took place in 175 BC. Now, Heliodorus didn't fight. There was no fight. There was no war. Heliodorus left. I don't know if Antiochus gave him the ability to leave or if they had a discussion before he left. I don't have that information. But what I do know is that Heliodorus left, and then he went into the region of India, where he worked for an Indo-Greek king by the name of Antiochus, and I'm confident that I'm not pronouncing that name correctly. He worked for the king as an ambassador and remained there for the rest of his life, from what I can tell. He did not devote himself, though, to the living God of Israel. That was something that I found quite interesting. You know, for someone who experienced such an encounter, I personally would expect that he would have had such an experience, such an encounter, that he would devote the rest of his life to the living God who personally revealed himself to Heliodorus. But no, Heliodorus became a worshiper of a monotheistic type of Hindu god, Vashnava, And through that decision, he officially rejected the God of Israel. Now, I believe that this is a very important thing to recognize because there are many people who make the assumption that if you experience the living God in some personal, profound way such as this, that somehow that gives you credibility, somehow that's your credentials, somehow that's God's endorsement of you, that you are one of his and that he is your God. But it's not necessarily the case. I personally know of many people who have experienced obvious miracles of God, interventions by him personally, and they know it. 
and yet they simply do not pursue a relationship with him at all. And instead, they consider that experience to be a validation of them to such an extent that there's no need for them to continue to mature in their faith or discover more of who their God is. And instead, they gradually stray away to the point where, in my opinion, they don't really have much of a relationship with the living God at all. This certainly does not always take place, but it takes place often enough that I believe that it should be mentioned especially in this context with Heliodorus, and it's something that we should be cautious of in the event that the Lord does do a work like this in our lives personally. And so these were the circumstances surrounding Antiochus IV coming to power in the Seleucid Empire. Antiochus III was his father, Seleucus IV was his brother, and then Antiochus IV took power after Seleucus was assassinated by his treasurer, Heliodorus. Now, all of these circumstances are very important to understand the background and to understand the situations that led up to the Maccabean Wars. All of these details have their place and have their importance. In addition to this, this is also the fulfillment of a prophecy that was given by the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 20, we have a few verses that describe prophetically what would take place in the future. And these events were the fulfillment of that prophecy that had been given by Daniel. And so I took a lot of time to describe the details, the background concerning Antiochus IV, in order to tell you about the fulfillment of this prophecy that was given by Daniel. And in the next program, I'll spend some time reading that prophecy and explaining to you why I would say that these circumstances are the fulfillment of this prophecy. But these are very important things to identify and to recognize because it does give credibility to the scriptures to see that many of the prophecies that have been recorded there have been fulfilled. This can give us confidence with regards to the other prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled. We can trust our God that he will fulfill all that he has declared previously. So I will explain this in the next broadcast. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Thank you,